every day. It's okay. Wonderful day of worship. Wonderful time of fellowship that we've had together. I'm so thankful to be a Christian. How about you? The best life there is, the Christian life. It's the most difficult, but it's the best life. And we're certainly thankful for that. I always appreciate the uh, opportunity and the occasion to proclaim the Word of God. It is a tremendous honor and delight for me to do that from time to time, and I, I appreciate being with this congregation. There is an old Japanese proverb that says, first, the man takes a drink, then the drink takes a drink, and then the drink takes the man. That proverb is pointing out the progressive nature of how intoxicants and alcohol can work upon a person. Let me say it like this. Every alcoholic, without exception, had to take the very first drink. without exception. And every alcoholic, when they took that first drink, did not say to themselves, I'm going to become an alcoholic. No one who is an alcoholic, when they took the first drink, ever believed that it was their intention to become an alcoholic. But they did. That's something to think about. While many people are quick to condemn overt drunkenness, I believe all of us understands and recognizes the fact that Social or moderate drinking is the norm in our society. And if you don't imbibe intoxicants, you just don't fit in. We need to understand that Christians will never fit into this world. No matter if it's the drinking of intoxicants, or anything else that is of a moral or immoral nature. Here is the problem that we have experienced in recent years in churches of Christ. More and more professing Christians, those who are members of the Lord's body, engage in what we call social drinking or moderate drinking. This, by and large, did not used to be in the body of Christ. 
We have allowed worldly culture to influence us to that degree. And not only in regard to the drinking of intoxicants, but so many other vices we have accepted. So what about social drinking and the Christian? Is it a sin to drink socially or moderately? The answer to that question is either yes or it's no. It's one or the other. What does the Word of God say? Does it say anything at all about this matter? There are many, many things we could look at but simply do not have the time. But I do want us to explore several New Testament verses that directly speak to the drinking of intoxicants in one way or another. Before we get to those verses, we need to understand something about the word wine. In our day and time, whenever we hear the word wine, we invariably think of an alcoholic fermented beverage. That's the way we use the word wine today. And because of that, it has caused uh, a great deal of misunderstanding with how the word wine is used in the Scriptures. This is a critical point. If we can understand how the word wine is used in both the Old and New Testaments, a lot of this confusion would disappear. I just want to say a couple of things about the word wine before we get into some passages of Scripture. The word wine, as it is used in the Old Testament and also the New Testament, is a generic word. And what do we mean by that, a generic word? Well, simply this, that sometimes the word wine can refer to an Fermented beverage, certainly so, to an alcoholic, intoxicating beverage. But the word can also refer to a non-fermented beverage, what we would call grape juice. Now, you don't have to turn to these verses. I'm just going to reference them very quickly. For example, in Isaiah chapter 65, in verse 8, it talks about the wine that is in the grape cluster. Well, we know that the juice that is in the grape cluster is not intoxicating. What is that? It's simply grape juice. But yet it is called wine there in the Scriptures. A number of other passages could be given as well. And then we come over to the New Testament and you have the Greek word oinos. O-I-N-O-S. 
oinos, that is translated wine. And just like its Old Testament counterparts, it is used in a generic way to refer either to a fermented beverage or to an unfermented beverage, again, what we would call grape juice. So how do we know the difference? When we see the word wine, how do we know it's referring to an alcoholic beverage or an intoxicating beverage? Or how do we know it's referring to grape juice? Here is how you know. The context in which the word is found will always determine how the word is being used. And so context, context is always key in that matter. Now, I'm not going to get into all of the arguments that people make from the scriptures in favor of social drinking. Brethren, I have heard every single argument known to man. And all of these arguments have been answered. The biggest argument that people give in favor of social drinking is that Jesus changed water into wine. I was speaking with a brother in Christ several years ago on this very matter. And he advocated for the moderate drinking of intoxicants. And I studied with him for a while and here is his argument or was his argument, wine is wine is wine. It's all intoxicating in the Bible. I said, that is not so, brother. And he appealed to Jesus changing water into wine. Well, it certainly says he did that. I don't deny that it says what it says. But the question is, since the word wine is used in a generic way, to refer to grape juice, did Jesus make an intoxicating, alcoholic, fermented beverage, or did He simply make grape juice? I am under the firm, unwavering conviction that He simply made pure grape juice. To suggest that our Lord made an intoxicating beverage and gave that beverage to those who had already been drinking, and they ran out, to say that our Lord did that is to create some very serious issues. And I tell you this, He violated Old Testament teaching if He made it an intoxicating beverage. And if he violated the Old Testament, then he is no longer the innocent, sinless Son of God. And if he did that, then let me tell you this, how seriously I take it. He is not my Lord, and he's certainly not my Savior. Jesus made pure grape juice. I wish we had more time to just study that. But again... My intention is not to look at all the various arguments, but to simply look at some scriptures. And all these scriptures are in the New Testament that we're going to be look, looking at. And so if you have your Bibles, and hope that you do, turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Uh, again, I'll be reading from the uh, New King James translation. 
And you may have a different translation on the uh, verses that we're going to be looking at, and I'm going to try to call attention to uh, the various different translations and how they translate these uh, verses and the words in these verses. But in Ephesians chapter 5 and uh, verse 18, uh, the Bible says, Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, I'm, I'm going to try not to get too technical as we analyze these various passages of Scripture. But we really need to put the microscope of learning upon these various passages here this afternoon and make sure we understand because very often our English translations don't bring out the full import of the original. And this is an example of that here in Ephesians 5 and verse 18. So let's uh, just explore this verse for a moment, especially the first part of it. Do not be drunk with wine. Now the old King James says, do not be drunk with wine wherein is excess. Now the way we use the word excess today, if you're looking at the old King James, and the new King James, you can see, see it says dissipation, but the old King James says excess. And so that has led to confusion because of the way we use the word excess today. So you can drink their argument goes like this, you can drink intoxicants as long as you don't do so to excess. Well, that's not what the verse is saying at all. But this word uh, drunk, and just referencing the New American Standard Bible, it, it says in which there is debauchery, which is a little bit better. But let's look at this term drunk, and I want you to follow me very closely because what we're going to say is, is very, very important. But you see this word uh, drunk, and it's preceded by be not. So it has the negative that comes before it. Uh, so let's look at this word drunk, and it's very important that we understand what this means. Now, if you're looking at the original language, which would have been the Greek, again, I'm, I don't want to get too technical, so hopefully I'll try to make this as, as plain as possible for us to understand. So there are basically two words translated drunk in the New Testament. Let me give you these two words. There is the word methuo, M-E-T-H-U-O, methuo. What does that word mean? It simply means to be drunk, to be filled, to be totally or filled full of intoxicants. That's the first word. The second word is similar to methuo, but it's different. It is methusko, and it is uh, M-E-T-H-U-S-K-O. Now, you can see the similarity between Methuo and Methusko, right? They, they sound similar, right? But there is a very important difference between the two words. Again, we're talking about the word drunk. What word 
did the Holy Spirit give to Paul that's translated drunk in our English translations? Not the word methuo, but the word methusko. Now, you may be asking yourself, well, what is the difference? What does methusko mean? So methuo simply means to be drunk, to be filled. Methusko, however, is what is called an inceptive verb. Sometimes called inchoative verb. Now, what in the world is an inceptive verb? <laughs> now, this is not an English class, but you need to understand this. It's very easy to understand. Just listen to me. What is an inceptive verb? Well, if, if, you, look at, if you look up that word inceptive in any dictionary, it's going to say something like this. Beginning, initial, or commencement. In fact, uh, if you look at Webster's Dictionary, he says, of or relating to a beginning. The Oxford Dictionary says, relating to or marking the beginning of something initial. W.E. Vine, in his word studies uh, on the word mafusco, says this, that it means to grow drunk. And then he states that it is an inceptive verb marking the process of the state expressed in methuo, which is the other word. Now, again, our English translations uh, don't really bring out the force of this Greek verb. But more literally, the verse could read like this. If you take this word methusko, an inceptive verb, and there are many of these in the Greek language, and it's unfortunate that our English translations do not really bring out the force of it. But more literally, it would be like this. Do not begin the process of becoming drunk. That's what an inceptive verb is. It, it starts the process. It's a beginning verb, a commencement verb, an initial verb. And so you're beginning the process of something. That's the difference between methusko and methuo. And I find it amazing that the Holy Spirit of God, and by the way, you know, when you look at the Greek language, it is a very precise language, even so more than our English language. And I find it amazing that, you know, the Holy Spirit gave the word mafusko to Paul. Again, that is translated drunk. So again, more literally, do not begin the process of becoming drunk. Now, let me ask you this question. This begs the question, well, when does the process of becoming drunk actually begin? When does that process begin? Here is what one doctor said. Overall, he says, intoxication is a matter of degree, a process that begins with the individual's first drink. Now, this is not just an isolated doctor saying this. This is an established medical scientific fact. And the reason why it is a scientific fact is because common sense tells you that intoxication begins when a person takes the very first drink or else one could keep on drinking and drinking and drinking and never become intoxicated. 
So when a person takes the first drink, are they free from intoxicants in that first drink? No, they're not. And so the Bible says, do not even begin, Methusco, do not even begin the process of becoming drunk. I have a book in my library called The Bible and Social Drinking, written by Brother W.D. W. Jeffcoat. It came out initially in 1987, there's been several reprints, it is a fine volume on this subject of drinking, particularly social drinking. I want to read you something from that book that he wrote. He says, these definitions clearly establish beyond a doubt that drunkenness is something that can grow. Progress from one state to another. Be considered as a state of becoming softened. And therefore, that is the beginning of even an advanced degree. The implication is that persons begin to be drunk when they begin to drink. No doubt, he says, the reason that some fail to see this fact is because of what they literally see. They have built into their systems the idea that persons must be staggering or in a stupor to be drunk. If they see them in such condition, they consider them as drunk, and otherwise they do not. This is not, however, the basis upon which the Bible determines drunkenness. And medical science also testifies in regard to alcoholic influence. So you see what he's saying. If, if we can't actually visualize or see a person staggering or in a stupor, then we say, well, they're not drunk. When in fact, they are still filled with intoxicants. And the Bible condemns even beginning the process of drunkenness. Now, I want to give you a very simple argument. It's called a syllogism. I don't know if you've ever heard of a syllogism before. But I love a syllogism. I use it all the time because it is a rock-solid, uh, logical way of presenting things. There are two premises and then a conclusion. If the first premise is true and the second premise is true, the conclusion has to follow. You can't deny it, no matter how badly you want to deny it. And so I want to do that with regard uh, to what this verse is saying. So let me give you the first premise. The process of becoming drunk begins with the first drink. Is that true or false? Well, of course that's true. We all understand that. That's just common sense. The process of becoming drunk begins with the first drink. But, number two, the New Testament condemns the process of becoming drunk by this word Methusco in Ephesians 5.18. That's true as well. So, therefore, what is the conclusion? Taking the first drink is condemned. Now, let me just repeat that. The process, number one, the process of becoming drunk begins with the first drink. 
but the New Testament condemns the process of becoming drunk. Therefore, taking the first drink is condemned. Now, folks, that is sound and cannot be successfully refuted. Let's turn over in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Beginning with verse 1, the verses that were read just a moment ago. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves, talking to those Christians now, He's referenced what Jesus did in the flesh, talking about His suffering, His crucifixion, and what all He went through. He says to those Christians, You arm yourselves also with the same mind, for He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that He no longer should live the rest of His time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Now, those two verses are very powerful because it, it speaks about a change that has taken place in a person's life. What a person used to be in uh, you know, living in sin on purpose and habitually as a way of life versus the fact that this is no longer how they live. They have ceased from sin. That is, they've ceased from living a life of sin. And uh, the purpose of ceasing from living a life of sin is stated there in verse 2. That, that he no longer, that is, the rest of his time that he lives, he no longer should, should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of who? The will of God. And then uh, verse 3 is a very... Interesting statement. For. Now whenever you see that word for that begins a sentence, you know that an explanation or a reason is about to be given. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked, that's your manner of life, when we walked in uh, lewdness, lusts, now I want you to notice these next three words. Drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, verse 4, in regard to these things, that is the things listed there in verse 3, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation Speaking evil of you. Now, these verses plainly bear out that at one time they used to live like this. And you have a catalog of sins, some things that Peter enumerated there in verse 3. This is the way you used to live. You no longer live like that. And other people think it's strange that you no longer do these things, that you no longer run with them. In that same type of lifestyle. Now, I want us to look at three words 
very quickly. And uh, they are the words drunkenness, revelries, <clears throat> and drinking parties. Let's look at drunkenness first of all. Now we set forth just a moment ago that the word translated wine in the New Testament is oinos. The uh, word translated drunkenness here in uh, verse 3 is from oinophalugia, which is a compound word. It's made up of oinos, which means wine, and phaluo, which means to bubble up or to overflow. So you put these things together, and it's talking about one who is overflowing. They're, they are bubbling over with wine. And so it is a picture of total and complete drunkenness. The person you can actually see with your eyes who is staggering in the streets. One who is in a total stupor. That's the import of the original word that's translated drunkenness. Now let's look at the next word, revelries. Revelines, the old King James says, the New American Standard Bible says carousing. And uh, I like carousing a little bit better. And I'll explain why here in just a moment. But as we look at the original word that is translated revelries or carousing, it has to do with a person, yes, who drinks but they have not gone to the point of total and complete drunkenness. And so you can see that the word is distinguished from drunkenness. Peter listed it separately, didn't he? He said drunkenness, and then he said revelries. You know, I have <clears throat> explored several Greek lexicons. A lexicon is just another way of saying a dictionary. And I have looked at several on this word translated revelries, and they all point to the fact that this word refers to those who drink or who are involved in some type of drinking party. As a matter of fact, Thayer says it refers to half-drunken people. And it's interesting that if you look at this word, the original Greek word, it is often used in secular Greek literature, that is literature outside of the biblical record, to describe uh, drinking parties, you know, such as we would see even today, you know, where there is the drinking of intoxicants. So it was a very common practice back then, as it is even today, uh, to go to these parties and drink alcohol, not necessarily becoming totally and completely drunken, but nevertheless who are often half drunken. Now it's, it's interesting, if you want to do a, a cross-reference of this, Galatians 5 and verse 21, you don't have to turn there, but you may want to reference Galatians 5, 21, because there Paul listed the works of the flesh, and just like Peter, he put together drunkenness and revelries, right side by side. So both Paul and Peter did the same thing. Drunkenness, revelries. Drunkenness, revelries. 
Again, the New American Standard Bible says carousing. If you have that translation, you may see the word carousing there. Uh, and that may more accurately capture what we today would think, and that is a party, because the word carousing in English today, if you look that word up in a dictionary, it basically refers to a drinking party. People are carousing, you know, they're, they're drinking. All right, so let's look at this third word. It's actually a phrase, uh, drinking parties. Does everybody see that phrase, drinking parties? Now, you have the word drunkenness, you have the word revelries, and now you have something else Peter lists distinctly and separately, drinking parties. Um, although a carousing is a drinking party, Peter nevertheless drew a distinction between carousing and drinking party. What, what is the difference here? What is the difference in this? There is a difference, or else Peter would not have listed it separately. If you look up the original word, for example, in Thayer's Greek lexicon, you know how he defines the word that's translated drinking parties? He defines it simply as a drinking, a drinking. And I've looked at various other lexicons on this word, and they also say this, the same thing, that it simply means to drink. And so, although most translations say drinking parties, you can actually just drop the word parties from it. It means just drinking. We're not talking about drinking water or Kool-Aid. Obviously, Peter still has in mind the drinking of intoxicants. So, let's just take these three words. Drunkenness, revelries, drinking. Now listen to me. I want you to notice the distinction between each of these three words. Now listen to this. Drunkenness. What do we say about that? Well, if you look at the original word, we're talking about someone who's totally and completely in a state of drunkenness that you can actually visually see. Number two, revelries. Someone who is not totally and completely in a drunken stupor, but who is half drunken. You know, today we might use the word they have a good buzz. But they're not totally smashed yet. And then drinking parties, or more literally, just drinking. Who do you think that covers? You have drunkenness, you have revelries, and just drinking. Would that not get your social or moderate drinkers? Indeed it would. Now what did Peter say about these sins? Well, you go back to verse 1, and these sins are specifically called sin. They had ceased from sin. These sins are called uh, the lusts of men. Those Christians to whom Peter wrote, no longer 
consumed alcohol to any degree. They had ceased living that lifestyle. And I love what the Greek scholar A.T. Robertson said about these three words here in this passage. He says, in light of these words, it seems strange to find modern Christians justifying their personal liberty to drink and carouse. And I think he's exactly right. I know our time is gone. Uh, very quickly, let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 4 through 8. I'm just going to say a few brief comments about these things to hopefully get across the point. Having to do with abstaining from any form or any degree of drinking intoxicants. But here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning with verse 4, Paul says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day, talking about the day of judgment in the context, should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, as you can see here, the term sober and the term drunk. You see both of those words in this context? What are we to be? Sober. We are not to be what? Drunk. The original Greek word that is translated sober is nepho. N-E-P-H-O, nepho, that word literally means to be free from wine, to be free from intoxicants. Now, it is unfortunate that practically every commentator that I have consulted say that is not the way the word sober is being used in the context, but it's being used in a figurative way, to be sober-minded. Well, I refute that based upon the context in which the word is used because it is put in contrast to being drunk. Don't be drunk. Now, is Paul talking about being figuratively drunk or literally drunk? Obviously, literally drunk. You don't want to be drunk. And the word that he used here is the same word that he used in Ephesians 5.18, methusko. Remember what that means? Do not begin the process of becoming drunk. But you be sober. Isn't that what verse 8 says? Look at it. But, that's a contrasting conjunction. So, don't be drunk, verse 7, but, but, you be what? You be sober. Don't be drunk, be sober. Sober is put in contrast to being drunk. And I find it fascinating that since... Again, the Holy Spirit used the word methusko, that inceptive verb. Don't even begin the process of becoming drunk. Because if you do start that process, 
then you are losing, you are in the process of losing your sobriety. So again, the word means to be free from wine, to be free from intoxicants. If a person takes the very first drink, are they free from intoxicants? No, they're, they're guzzling right down. Now, here's what I've always told people. People try to treat this so innocently. There's nothing wrong. It's not going to hurt you to take one drink. It's, it's just no big deal at all. Uh, bring your little kid here. Would you give him some? Oh, well, you just said there's nothing wrong with it. I, you know what I think? People like to say that, but they know deep down in their hearts there is something in that beverage that can hurt people. And so, you know, I'm not surprised at all that there is a particular Greek word that the Holy Spirit used to inspire men to use to write Methusko. And I love it. Don't even begin the process of becoming drunk. And you take what Peter said there in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3. Drunkenness, revelries, and drinking parties are just drinking. And that gets the whole gamut right there, doesn't it? And be sober, be free from intoxicants. I hope these things have been helpful. As we've tried to explore several passages, there's a lot more that could be said. We could look at several things from the Old Testament as well. But I believe we have established beyond a doubt if we just let the Bible speak for itself and as we carefully study these things to see that drinking intoxicants to any degree is condemned in the Word of God. Here's the sad fact of the matter. People are going to do what they want to do. And sadly, I have met too many so-called Christians who are going to drink their wine regardless of what the Bible says. You know, if you have a good and honest heart and you look at the things we've discovered here and looked at in the Word of God, you ought to say to yourself, you know what? This is what the Bible teaches. And I'm going to change. I am no longer going to do that which is against God and against my soul. That's the type of heart we need to have. I realize that we are bombarded with temptations every day. My uh, supervisor at work, his last day was this past Friday. He was having a get-together at a bar. He wanted everybody to come to, you know, and have a drink with him. I did not go. I told him I do not drink. And I don't go to bars and associate and be tempted to drink. My coworkers know exactly where I stand. I've gotten a few arguments with, with some of my coworkers trying to argue in favor of drinking. Well, how do you have a good time? How do I have a good time? I've got to drink to have a good time. And it's, it's just silly. It's silly some of the things that, that people set forth to try and justify their drinking. But we as Christians need to accept the, what the Word of God says on this matter and apply it to our lives. Uh, maybe this is the first time you're hearing about this. I hope it's done some good. I really do. And you'll take this information, apply it to your life. Cease 
cease from living in sin. If you need to repent of your sins here today, we encourage you to come forward. Confess those sins and we will encourage you. We will pray with you and for you. If you need to be baptized into Christ and into His church, predicated upon your faith in Jesus as God's Son, your willingness to confess Him as the only begotten Son of God, and your willingness to repent of all sins, to change your life, you can do that here this afternoon as together we stand and as we sing.